And we have to have a living answer to a living problem. Now, just before lunch, we covered a specific phase, the area of business. And now we are going to cover the area of home and personal relationships, individual relationships. What is to be our attitude and our effort in our own homes? About a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago or something. I was talking in Maximum and the Grasshopper. I was talking in Minimum over Chino. The Maximum gets out a half hour before Minimum, and then we could go on over and spend the rest of the time in the other meeting. And... In case you don't know who the grasshopper is, it's Eddie Cochran. <laughs> Eddie Cochran. <laughs> and so that meeting got over and we started for the coffee. And Eddie was chattered like a damn monkey. And he says, we went to a meeting the other night. And they asked if there were any Beginners there, and the new people there. Whose hand went up? He says, whose hand went up? And I said, oh, no, no. He says, my wife. <laughs> he says, I finally took this thing home. <laughs> I finally took this thing home. I guess he's been in already for over ten years. And he's finally taken it home. And his wife declared herself in. My wife and I had been married for 20 years prior to my demise and rebirth. And in the entire 20 years, she couldn't please me. She had never pleased me. From the very beginning, she had never been able to please me. Because... What she did, she was supposed to do, wasn't she? <laughs> she was the wife of the great chamberlain. <laughs> you know? And what she did, she was supposed to do. And what she didn't do, I got dipped. She didn't love me, no. <laughs> you know? And she simply couldn't please me. We didn't have any real bad times together except over the, the liquor. But it was just the unrest, the, the never being really satisfied and happy with, with a lot, with my lot. Well, she had considered breaking up the little partnership for some time, but had never been able to bring herself around to it until the last trip out. She had finally decided that kids better not have any father than have a drunken father. So she had sought counsel 
to legally rid the household of something they hadn't had for a long time anyway. Me. Now, the only thing that she had ever been prepared to do in life, besides being a good wife and mother, was in theatrical business. She was very good. That's where the kid gets his stuff. And marrying me had scotched that. <laughs> and it was 20 years too late by this time. And so she had to have some way of feeding those kids and her mother who lived with us. So she went out and started a business course. She thought that having been a good pianist, the typing would be very easy for her. She ought to pick that up in a hurry. So she was going to learn how to type and read books and the like so she could feed the kids. Well, she brought a typewriter home with her, put it on the table, you know, out in the dining room. And I'd be laying back in that bedroom. <laughs> She's out there pecking the hell out of this typewriter. <laughs> Well, it didn't do very much for my nerves. <laughs> but as drunk as I was, I knew that you'd never make it. <laughs> you'd never be a typist as long as you lived. <laughs> and this didn't do anything good for my insides either. Might have been one of the things that helped me finally get to the program, I don't know. But I had this little experience that we talked about this morning, middle of January 46. And I called this woman in after I had gotten to a place where I could talk. And I said to her, honey, it's no longer of any consequence to me whether I live under this roof or someplace else. It is absolutely of no importance to me at all. I'll never ask a thing of you as long as the two of us live but one. If I can ever add anything to your life, let me do it. And we close the book. And neither one of us knew what we were talking about. And I called the boys in. And I said, boys, there's no father in the household any longer. You don't need to love me, you don't need to respect me, and you don't need to obey me. I'll never ask a thing of you as long as you live but one. If I ever have anything, be it money, counselor, or blood, that will add to your life, let me give it to you. And we closed that book. And it was never reopened. And inasmuch as there is no way that we can change a thought or act of yesterday. There was no sense in dwelling on that end of the deal. What had been done was done. 
And so my intent was to do something for them now. And I started trying to do this to add to their lives. And again, with no expectancy. I never had any more thought that that household would be put back together than they had planned to move. And for my first six months in the program, I never even talked with them about AA. I never said a damn word to them about it. I'd put on my hat and I'd go to an AA meeting. And I'd come back home and think about it all night. Very little sleep. And then I'd do what I could the next day and go to another meeting. But I never, I never spoke with them about it at all. I did, however, by the book, the first meeting I went to and brought it home. And unknown to me, she read the book. Not once, but probably many times. And I never said anything to them about the program until the six months period was over. And I had awakened to the fact that I was sober and had been all the time. And then I started taking Mrs. C. with me to meetings. She indicated that she'd like to go. And I think the second great awakening, the first being the awakening that I was sober and had been all the time. The second one was that something had happened in the household. There wasn't any fighting anymore. There wasn't any uh, uh, blue papers passing around. <laughs> and there, there was just a new house somehow or another. And somehow, the woman was for the first time in my life very satisfactory. She didn't have to do anything. There were no demands. She didn't have to be there. She didn't have to come or go or cook or clean or anything else. And she did them. And it was a plus. She didn't have to. Formally, it was a demand. That was her business, you know. She was my wife. <laughs> and now there were no demands, and she was doing it. And so it was a plus. And so this thing put itself together. And we've had 17 of the most wonderful years you ever heard tell of. Same woman. The same kids. Now, talking this morning about giving each other the right to make our own mistakes. I believe this has to go through every relationship, including our own wives and our own kids. We have to give them the same right that we have. I believe we said this morning that God loved us enough to allow us to make our own mistakes that we might the sooner 
run out of her own resources and come back home. Now, we've got to carry this thing through on the family level also. We've got to give our wives and our kids the right to make their own mistakes. We've got to give them the right to find their own answers, even as you and I had to find out. I remember probably about the end of the first year we joined a meeting and I talked a little bit. And it's the first time she'd ever heard me talk in an AA meeting. And it was just a very short thing. And I ended the talk by saying that if it were necessary for me to go home and pack my little grip and go to Tibet in order to maintain what I had found, I would go immediately home and pack my grip and I'd come to the living room and I'd kiss my wife goodbye. And I would say, honey, I'm sorry. I've got to go. And I just said it because it was true. <laughs> and uh, we got home and I was sitting in a big chair and she was sitting over in Davenport and pretty soon I became conscious of the fact that she was falling apart she was just crying her heart out and I said to her well honey what What's the matter? What, what? Yes. And she says, oh, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> she says, here for the first time in her life, we have a chance for a little peace and a little happiness. And you say you'd pack up and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> she says, don't I mean anything to you? Don't the kids mean anything to you? And she just broke all up. And so I let her cry until she quit. And I said, honey, am I worth anything to you, drunk? And she said, yes. Am I worth anything to the kids, drunk? No. Am I worth anything to life, drunk? And she says, no. Well, I said, then can't you see that this has to be first? I can't live and drink. Of myself, I can't keep from drinking. Can't you see that this has to be number one in my life? Well, she couldn't. <laughs> but it came to pass, and it wasn't too long until she was saying that to her people, just the same. This thing that we were talking about this morning, this love thing that we were talking about, love includes possession, but not the necessity to possess. Love includes possession, but not the necessity to possess. The necessity to possess is an ego satisfaction. This is an ego thing. 
And as such, it is my will, the necessity to possess. But possession, the mutual givingness of peoples to each other in love, this is normal and natural and good. But the necessity to possess is the killer. And so the relationship changed completely. Now, as time went on, having give up, given up the authority in the beginning, Because, you see, due to the very nature of the alcoholic, his demands were great. Being perfectionists, as all of us are, we not only demanded perfection out of ourselves and didn't give it, but we demanded it out of everybody around us. And if we didn't get it, we got hurt by it. The demand for perfection out of those around us, it goes with the perfectionistic nature of the alcoholic. And so we attempted to force it. I damn near ruined the woman and the kids. Demanding perfection out of them. I had those two boys, so they were almost afraid to pick up a football or a basketball or a baseball. Because I wanted them to be all Americans. You know? All that stuff was simple and easy for me. I, I was a born athlete. And I just raised Medwitt. I'd show them how to do a thing, and when they didn't do it, I was on them like a tip. <laughs> and I didn't scare to death. Same way with uh, doing something. I wanted them to get busy. You see, I was a self-made man. <laughs> and I wouldn't let anybody forget it. <laughs> I was born with a pitchfork in my hand. And I made, I made my own way from the time I was 13. And here these monkeys of mine wouldn't even get a paper route. <laughs> and I was beating them to get the hell out there and do something, you know? And I just stand there ruined them, really. Well, the accident of failure and giving up the authority and giving them the right to make their own mistakes. And pretty soon coming to realize that the only right any one of us has to teach at any level, including the home, is my existence. This is the only right any of us have to teach. By example. Not by word or authority, but by example. And so it wasn't very long until they were bringing me their problems. 
those kids were bringing me their problems. And I would listen to them and I would say to them, well, I think I'd do it this way. This seems to me to be the right approach to it, but you don't have to do it this way. Do it your own way. And as a consequence, they bring anything. When it came time for old Bill to get married, he came to me and he says, Dad, I want to know everything you know about a woman. <laughs> my own son. <laughs> and by George, I told him. <laughs> We sat all night and talked. And I withheld nothing. But now these are the things we're just looking at and talking about. A, an attitude in the home. Giving our people, our closest people, the right to live their own lives and make their own mistakes. And learn in their own way. Now, after about seven years, I guess I was sober. Al-Anon came along. And Mrs. C. had already seen that going with me to meetings wasn't doing it for her. And when this Al-Anon deal came, came along, she got in it hook, line, and sinker. And she is more active in her work, I think, than I am in mine. Because she has days to work at it. She started a, a group in our living room in Beverly. Went from two or three to a house full. And they had to get a hall to be there. And they're still going good. And she started a group as soon as we got located in Laguna Beach. Met in our living room for two or three years. Got up to 45 women. And then they had to get a haul down there. But you see, she is going down the same road that I'm going. But in her own path. In her own way. And so we're walking down the same road together, but not too close together, giving each other the right to make our own mistakes. Now, we've got to carry this thing all the way through, and this program somehow teaches us why people do the things that they do. See, we're inclined to think that we're the only people that are obsessed. We got an obsession of the mind and a knowledge of the body. We're alcoholics. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but we don't give other people the right to be obsessed. We have as many obsessions we do. And we got to come to see that people don't act like they act because they want to, but because they have to. We quickly tell you that we drank against our own will. You know, we decided to quit drinking. Sincere as hell. 
you know. But we were drunk that night because of the obsession, you know. <laughs> but how about giving the other guy the right to a few obsessions too? And when we come to see this, we know why people act like we act. And therefore, the hurt's gone out of it. You see, when people used to try to tear us down, we had to straighten them out. Sometimes we got the hell kicked out of ourselves. <laughs> but it didn't start it didn't stop the crusade. We lost a few battles, but we never lost the war. You know? We had to straighten them out. I'm mindful of one of my old drinking buddies, just Ted Bond, Bond's Markets. And we used to run around together a great deal with our families. Ted was a hell of a good drinker. Still is. And the drunker he got, the more dignified he got. <laughs> and just before he'd fall on his face, he was as dignified as Napoleon, you know? <laughs> Absolutely proper in everything. And my wife made the mistake of saying to me, Oh, why can't you drink like Ted? <laughs> well, I immediately had a project. <laughs> I had to get the guy drunk right in front of her. So drunk he couldn't hit the floor with his hat. Well, I didn't have anything against it. <laughs> I don't think still do. But I had to show my wife that that guy was as bad a drunk as me. And so I tripled him. <laughs> now, this is what I'm talking about. Why people do what they do. Many of you have heard me use this little example. Shows you the difference. Here a little while back, I was talking at Ohio Street, Santa Monica. And it was on a weekend and I'd come all the way up from Missouri and been drinking coffee all day, so my first stop was the little boys' room. And I went in there, and there was a guy in there. And he looked up and saw me, and he says, Oh, he says, you walk, are you talking here tonight? And I said, Thank you. Well, he says, Wish I'd known it was going to Balibu. <laughs> <laughs> And I says, well, you still got time. <laughs> and I do so what happens. I, I got enough money in my pocket to pay your taxi fare. Call a cab and run up to Malibu. They'll have a good meeting up there tonight. Oh, he says, you know, I was just kidding. And he turned to go out, but he never made it. He came back and he says, Chuck, he says, do you know how you ruin every talk you ever make for me? <laughs> And I said, no, I, I'd be interested. Because you take your coat off. 
Well, I said, that's another good reason for you to go to Malibu. <laughs> I said, tonight it's a little bit warm, and I'm liable to slip out of that jacket most any time. Oh, he said, don't kid me. He said, you don't take off that coat because you're hot. You do it to make an impression. <laughs> he says, you're a public speaker. I'm a public speaker, too, and I know. <laughs> well, he turned and walked out. Well, there's been a time when he couldn't have gotten out of that place with a tooth in his head. <laughs> I wouldn't even turn around. I'd just swoon at the sound. <laughs> but the thing that happened this time, my inside said to me, the boy's hurt. The boy's hurt, and I hope something will come out tonight that will might give him a clue. And maybe you'll get some help in this area. Now you see the difference? We simply got to come to see that people don't act like they act because they want to, but because they have to, just as we drag. Because we had to. And we give them the right to their own opinions, and we give them the right to make their own mistakes. And it isn't necessary then for us to make them over. And if we're living these principles, if we're practicing these principles in all of our affairs one day at a time, pretty soon they're coming to us with their problems. And they're asking us because it's no longer necessary, you see, for us to tell it. This is fabulous. A teacher don't have to look for pupils. They seek out the teacher. And the only right we have to teach is by example. Now, let's look at the change in relationships in its entirety. At the whole picture. Many of you have heard me tell this too, but it bears, I think, it bears repeating. <coughs> I had talked in St. Louis at the annual bank about six years ago. Seven. And it was a big thing. Father Ed Dowling was there. Father Ed, as most of you know, was not an alcoholic. But he was acquainted with this thing. He heard about it early and went back to New York to meet Bill in the very early days. And uh, <coughs> he loved this thing. And he was in it, but not of it, until his death, just shortly before our 25th anniversary. Now, I'd heard Father Ed talk, and I loved him, and he'd heard me before this particular thing, and I think he 
snubbed me a bit. And so after the thing was over, Mrs. T said, let's ask Father Ed to have coffee with us. And I said, well, I think it'd be wonderful if he'd do it. And being an alcoholic, I said, you ask him. <laughs> she did. And so helped me, he accepted. And then we went and sat down in the booth. And this guy started asking questions. And he never quit. And I would say to him, Father, I've talked all evening. You talk. Let me listen. And he'd ask another question. And the last question that he asked was about the family. And I said, well, Mrs. Siege here. We let her answer this one. And Mrs. She told him what had happened in the family. And the guy sat with his mouth pursed up as was his warmth, looking off into space for seemingly five minutes. Then he turned around and he says, you know something, Chuck? And I says, what's wrong? And he says, sometimes I have to believe that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. Sometimes I have to believe that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. And I looked at my wife and I said, honey, what's, where is the difference? Where is the difference? Because that's exactly what this program does for us. It gives us a new pair of glasses. We don't see as we used to see. We don't hear as we used to hear. We don't act as we used to act. We are not motivated as we used to be motivated. The whole thing is turned around. We have a new pair of glasses. All the relationships of life are different. We come to see ourselves in all and all men in ourselves. Now, as strange as it might seem, I sat in the same chair, in the same living room, with the same wife and the same kids for 10 years in hell and 11 years in heaven. The same chair, in the same living room, with the same wife and the same kids. Ten years in hell and eleven years in heaven. And then we moved to Laguna. And the chair didn't match. And they put it back in the den. And it took me about five years to get it back out in the living room. <laughs> but I got it back there now and I'm still sitting in the same chair. Now this is what we're talking about. This is what this whole thing has been about. How come you can sit in the same chair in the same living room with the same woman and the same kids? Hell and heaven. A new pair of glasses. A new pair of glasses.
it had been since I've seen him drunk. It's been ten years. It's been ten years since I've seen a dog. And yet every time I go downtown, I go down to the end of Fifth Street. I pick up Fifth at Central Avenue and go west. I'm drawn as a magnet. Every time I go downtown, that's my route, my route. And nearly every time I pull into Fifth Street, the Black Mariah is there. I know that thing. I know her inside out. I've ridden in her in chains. And here she comes with the rag pickers. And the wino sees it. And he tries to make his getaway. The one you know that's got the fist in a brown bag so nobody will know what he's got. <laughs> <laughs> and he tries to escape. Maybe he's not navigating very good. And maybe he hits the street about five times before he gets in the alley. But he never bumps that box. <laughs> and he gets in the alley, and I'm glad. Because that's me, but with the grace of God. That's me. I don't see a wine. I see me, but with the grace of God. And I go on down the street, and here sits the old boy in the doorway. July and he's got his black overcoat on. He's got a half fifth sitting there with him, red eye. And he's laughing and talking with his friend. His friends aren't there. I can't hardly pass him by. I can't hardly go by. I want to get out and leave the car sitting there and <laughs> sit down and pull him over on my lap. And tell him, look, brother, there's a better way. See, I used to wear my overcoat in July. I used to meet the people and talk with them, and they talked to me, and they weren't around. This was one of the most difficult things that my family had to put up with. We'd all be sitting in the same living room, and I'd have company, and they wouldn't have any. <laughs> That's me, but with the grace of God. The new pair of glasses. And so we come to see that every man that lives is doing the best he can according to his light. That is, according to his understanding. Every man that lives is doing the best he can according to his life. That is, according to his understanding. Why don't I steal? Because I know I can steal from nobody but me. Can't steal from anybody but me. There's no necessity of it. 
Why do I hate? I can't afford it. I can't afford the penalty. Why don't I judge? I can't afford it. Why don't I condemn? I can't afford it. I am unwilling to pay the inevitable price that goes with it. Because I know better now. I've got a new pair of glasses. And now this, then, is going to be the last of this series of lessons. I'm going to throw a little thing at you to think about and play with. It is my opinion that the only bondage there is is total an absolute freedom under law. The only bondage there is is total and absolute freedom under law. There is no law of God or man that says I can't drink liquor. There is no law that says I can't drink liquor. It's free, as far as I'm concerned. I'm free to drink. It's legal in California. And I got enough money in my pocket to buy a whole parcel of it right now. A whole gob of it. By the grace of God, this is a miracle of AA. <laughs> I wouldn't have it very long if I had one. <laughs> but, there's no law that says I can't. Why don't I? Because I am not willing to pay the inevitable price. No bondage but freedom. I can think and do as I please. As long as I am willing to pay the inevitable penalty of my thought and act. Now, the freedom then does not include license. It isn't enough that I say, all right, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. <laughs> We were talking about this just for the meat. <laughs> it's my head that hurts. You know, I'm not hurting. I'm still paying the bills. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. No. Freedom doesn't include license because, again, here's the operation of the law. Justice without judgment. And I can't afford to pay the penalty. 
There's a man whom I knew and whom many of you know and have heard. I met him several years before he decided he was an alcoholic and heard him talk in another area of life. And I thought he was a bombastic, egotistical ass. <laughs> and we had a symposium on alcoholism. This might be 12 years ago or 14 at UCLA. And uh, Dr. Jelnik was here from the World School of Alcoholic Studies and a lot of others. And I attended this thing, and this guy happened to be teaching at UCLA at the time, and uh, he was the moderator of this symposium. Well, before the symposium was over, this guy decided to declare himself in. He's not on. And so he started coming to meetings. And here I wanted to get rid of this thing I had about the guy. <laughs> because he, he did something bad to me. And I used to go clear across town to get to hear him. To see if I wouldn't change my mind. And I had it pretty near licked. Really, I did. Then one night we dropped into motion picture group over in Hollywood. And the first speaker that night was Zach Turton. And Zach was from my home group. You remember Zach. And I said to my wife, honey, isn't it nice we came? We haven't heard Jack for quite a while, and this is great. And Jack got up and gave a nice talk, and we were tickled. And then he sat down, and this guy got up. <laughs> And it was shortly after the controversy here in town about who held the first meeting and who brought the first book and who got sober first and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and this guy gets up and he talks about ten minutes on honesty. What a great thing it was, you know, to be honest. And then he says, so-and-so says, so-and-so brought the first book out here. That's a lie! <laughs> <laughs> and you're a meeting of about 400 people and a lot of new ones in it. <laughs> and it just put in there, it killed me. And you'd say, so-and-so says, so-and-so had the first meeting. That's a lie! <laughs> and then you go ahead and tell who did it. <laughs> And this went on for the whole time. And when the meeting was over, I said to Mrs. T, honey, let's go home. <laughs> I want to take a shower. <laughs> and she said, you just had a shower. <laughs> and I said, I know, but I'm dirty. Let's go home. And we went home, and I took a shower. <laughs> And I'm in the shower with the water beating on. And a thing went through my mind. 
And it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the old boy slid off my back. And he's never been straight. And nobody else has ever been there. You see, I can't afford to carry these guys. I can't afford a resentment. I can't afford judgment. I can't afford hate. I can't afford lies and deceit. These things I cannot afford. Because I can't be comfortable with myself and do them. No bondage but freedom. Wouldn't it be funny? Wouldn't it be a great cosmic joke if this thing were true? That the thing we have always been searching for, we have been searching with, that the God that we have always been searching for has been with us forever. And all we have to do is get rid of the debris, uncover, and discover. Isn't it a, an amazingly wonderful thought to think there is no bondage but freedom? Now, what then? is my chore out here. In all my comings and goings, in every avenue of my life, what is my chore out here? What is my business? My business is to go about my father's business. That's the only business I've got. To share my experience, strength, and hope with anybody that wants because I want to. This is my business out here. Now what is my business with me? Who is the Pope's Pope? You know? Who is the preacher's preacher? Where am I to go? I can't blame God. I can't blame the devil. I can't blame you. I can't blame circumstances and conditions. Where am I to go when things are not well with me? I have to come to myself. Now, my business is very simple out here. But what's my business with me? My business with me is to sit off a mile away and look at me and see what I can do and be comfortable inside and do those things, accentuate those things, and to see what I cannot do and be comfortable with myself and eliminate those things. Because I must be comfortable in here. 
If I am not comfortable with me, the next thing I know, I'll reach for the Bible for the drink. And I'll wake up with an empty glass in my hand. I always did. When I was not comfortable with me, and that big hurt was in here, I had to get rid of it. And the only way I knew was to drink. And so it's most important that I stay comfortable with me. And here again, to be honest enough, to see ourselves and to see our motivation in all departments and to eliminate the things we can't do and be comfortable. This is my business with me. And I have to do it. There's no other way that I can live. I have to do it. This is my business with me. And so this takes the whole business of living. The living out here. My business out here. And the living in here. My business in here. Now this one last remark. It's this simple with me. I'm either going to run my life and take the consequences, or I'm not going to run it and take the consequences. You can't do both. The carpenter says you can't serve two masters. A house divided against itself can't stand. We gotta, we gotta see one or the other. You can't mix them. It's like mixing oil and water. This is one of the great fallacies in most of this inspirational reading that we get now. For instance, a book like uh, Peel's book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Now, this is a hell of a book. People, lots of people uh, that aren't out here. <laughs> you can read that book and get a lot out of it. But an alky can. Because this is taking a little spiritual stuff and mixing it with a little material stuff and coming out with a better product. <laughs> well, that don't work with that. We gotta either make one over the other. Either I'm going to run my life and take the consequences or I am not going to run it and take the consequences. But now I can't run it. I'm an alcoholic. I cannot run it. And therefore, there's nothing in me that even wants to. I don't want to try. I had my Eddie. I ran it for 43 years and wrecked the whole deal. <laughs> so I can't run it. So I'm not going to run it. I'm going to not run it and take the consequence. And so how am I going to do that? 
just by this very simple little thing I just told you. I'm going to go about my father's business out here to the best of my ability one day at a time because I want to. And I'm going to clean up in here to the best of my ability so that I will be comfortable with myself and let the chips fall where they may. Now, I will close by saying I never had it so good. This is the only easy life I have ever known, and I'm 60 years old. This is the only good life that has ever been mine in my entire lifetime. And I never had it so good. It's my business to walk in this way, and it's God's business to take care of it. And I don't interfere with him. I just let him do it. <laughs> God bless you all.